Hello, I'm Ramon Varco, and this podcast is called Masters of Circulation, where doctors Peter Schneider, Andrew Holden, and myself focus on teasing out the pearls of wisdom from inspirational leaders in the vascular field. Our mission is to explore the history of what got us to where we are today, the current challenges we're all facing, and those all-important perspectives on where we're headed next. Our guest today needs no introduction, and to be honest, his biography and achievements are too numerous to detail in the time that we have. However, let me try to hit the highlights. Frank Veith is Professor of Surgery at the New York University in Cleveland Clinic, as well as the William J. Von Lieberg Chair in Vascular Surgery. Over the years, he's pioneered a long list of surgical techniques, including lung transplantation, lower extremity revascularization, and aortic stent grafting, with he and his group performing the first endovascular graft repair of both intact and ruptured AAAs in the US. He's an ex-president of the SVS and is a major force promoting the endovascular treatment of many vascular diseases. In fact, in his 1996 presidential address to the SVS, he predicted the endovascular revolution and the dominant role endovascular would play into the future, despite much resistance. He chairs one of the most important vascular meetings in the world. Held annually in New York City, the Veith Symposium will be in its 48th year when held in November this year. He's received numerous Lifetime Achievement Awards and published more than a thousand influential manuscripts and book chapters. He is truly eminent in the vascular world, and we're greatly honoured to have him with us today. G'day, Frank. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So, Frank, I'll kick things off just by asking you to tell us a bit about your early career and specifically what drew you to vascular surgery as a specialty. Uh, It's a great question. Uh, I mean, I trained as a general surgeon and a thoracic surgeon, uh, and uh, I just felt that the challenge of vascular procedures and the sickness of the patients uh, and the fact you could make a huge difference if you got them well uh, really attracted me to, to vascular surgery and, and the technical challenge. I mean, sewing the bowel isn't so technically demanding, uh, but sewing up an artery uh, is uh, and dissecting it out and all that, I, I think it just seemed like the thing I wanted to do. One of the things um, you, you're well known for uh, is embracing new technologies and, and and techniques. And one of the things you've also been known for is to be prepared to go against conventional wisdom or against the grain of vascular surgery, vascular intervention, if you really thought there were new techniques and technologies that needed to be embraced. I want to sort of couch that in terms of EVAR in the early days of EVAR. You, know, you, you were a pioneer and an early adopter. What kind of resistance did you get from the establishment, Frank? When oh, enormous. I mean, the John Porters of the world uh, were very negative, uh, negative about training vascular surgeons. And uh, every time we present something, I mean, I, I recall we, we presented to all the young or middle-aged leaders in vascular surgery. That's something called the Vascular Surgery Biology Club with all my friends. Uh, and... We wanted to present our early endograph work because we thought it was going to be transforming. And Jerry Goldstone was the secretary of that organization. He said, we only have one presentation. Jack Cronenwet is presenting co-culturing endothelial and smooth muscle cells. You'll have to wait for next year. <laughs> and, and I said, I mean, it was a big social event. We drank and, and one guy would present and that was it. And so I said to Jerry, this is really important stuff. You know, if we don't get onto it, it really works. I never thought it was going to work, but it works. And I'd like to tell the all of you are my friends, 
And he kept saying next year, next year. I said, Jerry, give me 10 minutes at the cocktail hour. And I brought Juan Perotti and Mike Marin. And uh, they didn't believe a word we said. They thought we were absolutely insane. And Porter's remark is, this isn't going to work. And if it does work, we shouldn't be doing it. And he kept saying that over and over again. And and the other guys, I mean, Jim Stanley was a very good buddy of mine. And Wes Moore, they, they just didn't believe us. And and the, the the early work was, you know, we had these impossible patients. And the damn things worked. Mm. So, of course, we got very enthusiastic. And, and I was lucky. I was president of the Eastern and then president of the SVS at just the time everybody was doubting. And they, they treated Perotti the same way, by the way. Nobody yeah. believed the word he was saying. And and so I had the opportunity to to uh, give a presidential address, which said, wake up, guys, and smell the roses or you'll be out of work. Mm. And And then I suggested two other things. I suggested we ought to work with cardiologists and radiologists because we can all help each other in vascular centers. That never worked. That was a complete failure. And my other failure, I said, we ought to get away from general surgery and the American Board of Surgery and have our own specialty. And that was that's that's continued up until the present time. That's a total failure. And I guess you needed to have reasonable self-confidence and self-belief because at times it got personal, Frank. Oh, very personal. No, I, I'm, I'm not a very cocky guy. I was always troubled by, you know, not being believed. That drove me crazy. Uh, and and I was really a, an establishment kind of vascular surgeon. I mean, I I drank the Kool-Aid for a long time. And uh, so I, I was very troubled by it. I'm not at all confident or cocky. I mean, that's that's not one of my attributes. So what would you what 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 advice would you give Frank to people at earlier stages in the career who are faced with the same thing? They they're passionate about the right thing to do, implementing change, and meet resistance from the establishment. Oh, you just keep at it. But I mean, I tell my young trainees now. I don't have as many of them as I did, but I said pick an area that nobody's interested in, and that nobody thinks is going to work, and you know maybe you'll come up with some. A uh, better way of doing it so that it works. I mean, history is is just full of people accomplishing things that everybody else said wasn't going to work. And you know, whether it's an airplane or a steamboat or anything, uh, going to Mars, going to the moon, and and if people don't think that it's going to work and you can make it work, you'll you'll become well known. You'll be successful. Whereas if you're a me too kind of person and just add on to what everybody else has done, you know, you'll be sort of normal, everyday, lackluster person. So Frank, what was the tipping point? Like when did people start to come around and start to think, hey, this EVA stuff might be a goer? Oh, well, uh, because I was president of the SVS and fairly well known, I got invited to give talks at various other places. And of course they could sense my enthusiasm and uh, particularly the young guys, it, it was the old old guard, the the John Mannix, the John Porter, the 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 traditional people in vascular surgery, the leaders who were the great doubters. The young guys, you know, they tried it and they saw that maybe it's going to work, and and so it, was, it took about five to six years before we got to the point where 
people started to realize that this is, you know, this is for real. And uh, maybe it's a better way of doing stuff. I mean, and, and, you know, and it goes on. And now Crossy Eventsoft is doing endoluminal uh, surgery on the bowel and developing technology to do it. I mean, why not go through a pathway that's already there instead of going at it from outside? These are great pearls, Frank. I love the idea of picking something that few people are interested in that maybe a lot of people are imagining or not, is not going to work. And uh, we have, uh, as you know, tremendous interest in uh, vascular today because of the, our 05 residency, our ability to train our own people now. Uh, we have a lot of younger people that are really truly at the beginnings of their careers. And it just so happens that there's also tremendous interest right now in limb salvage. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it, it, that was another area where we were treated like um, pariahs. I, I can remember uh, Enrico Asher was one of my trainees, presented a uh, technique at the American College of Surgeons. John Manick was the moderator and a technique for dealing surgically, open surgery with heavily calcified little arteries. And we did the stupid thing, which happened to work, crush them. And then you could cut them and suture them, whereas otherwise you, you couldn't do that. And, and Manic was saying, you must come from those crazy radicals in the Bronx. And, and, uh, and sure enough, it worked. And, and so a lot of the, the things that, that lead to advances is if, you think something might work, try it, and it might work. Of course, we're now impeded by the FDA and all these regulations and stuff, but surgeons have, have traditionally, and interventionists too, have traditionally gotten out of trouble by trying something that seems counterintuitive, but remarkably it works. And, and I got the idea of crushing that calcified vessels when I couldn't clamp them. I didn't know about balloons then. And uh, so in desperation, because I couldn't stop bleeding, I took a big clamp and I crushed the vessel with all the calcium in it. And sure enough, it cracks, the calcium cracks and the intact enema holds the calcium in place. So it doesn't, you know, protrude into the lumen and, and you could clamp the vessel and then sew it. Well, Frank, tell us a little bit more about the early days of limb salvage. Uh, I know. So those were my some of my formative years uh, as a trainee and as a resident and fellow. Uh, the you know the typical vascular surgeon saw the patient from the knees up, and and didn't really think much about the potential of saving a patient's leg where really the primary problem was further distal. And I remember some of your articles about what we would call today extreme bypass, actually, uh, oh, going yeah. into the foot, extreme. going. Tell us a little bit more about that. How did you, where did, you know, I know there there were others that were interested, but you were one of the first that really laid it out there of, guys, we're missing this massive opportunity to help our patients. Well, we, we weren't the first to do, you know, distal bypasses, but uh, below the knee. But we were the first to basically say, everybody has a threatened limb, should have an attempt at limb salvage, what we call the aggressive approach to limb salvage. And I was just lucky with that because I went from Cornell and Bellevue in Manhattan 
to Montefiore Hospital. And of course, I wanted to do aortas and carotids just like everybody else was doing. We didn't have any of those patients. We didn't have very many. Certainly, I didn't have any that were sent to me. But we had this just abundant number of patients with gangrenous feet or gangrenous toes or bad ulcers. And we had a very good radiologist. I made a big mistake. I I stopped doing angiography, which I was trained to do, and said, because the radiologists do it better, he should do all of them. Name was Seymour Sprayregan. And so we sent all, I, I made all the vascular surgeons, or tried to make them stop doing angiography, send them all to Sprayregan. And he got these unbelievable arteriograms from the renals to the toes every time. I mean, he loaded the patient with his dog. They'd scream and holler, but he got good arteriograms. And so we saw the vessels down to the toes, which very few other people were doing. And we found that if you couldn't do something proximally, which of course was our favorite treatment, there were patent arteries, even though they were small and diseased distally. And if you were very careful about it, I didn't think it was going to work, but these procedures worked. You know, first we use veins and then we use prosthetic and, uh, and they worked. And so we, because we had all these patients and because what we were doing was working, again, we didn't use aortic suturing technique. We did very fine, uh, delicate sutures like you do with creating an AV fistula uh, in the wrist. And, and these procedures remarkably worked. And as we did them, we got more and more confident. We came to the conclusion after about four or five years of doing this that we, we ought to try and save every, every patient with a gangrenous foot. And of course, when we presented it, we presented it at the American Surgical. We presented, of course, at the SVA. Nobody believed us. They say, you can't, you're lying. You're not telling the truth. And, you know, we weren't telling the truth. And people would come and watch us. And invariably, the procedures took hours. Guy was, guys would come from England and they'd say, well, we, we never get arteriograms below the mid leg. And, and you're getting these great arteriograms. And then they'd, They'd come to New York, they'd watch us for a couple hours, and then they'd leave to go to a Broadway show, and they wouldn't stay for all the grief that we had, you know, when we did a an angiogram, had to revise it and stuff like that. So people just didn't believe us, and, and Americans as well as Europeans. And that went on probably through the late 70s and 80s, uh, and starting in the late 80s and 90s, other people started to to adopt some of these techniques. And then there was all this nonsense about in situ bypass. And, and you know, people like uh, Carmody and Leather, John Manick and all those, they said, if you can't do an in situ bypass, just take the leg off. And that of course wasn't true. And, and so, yeah. you know, we were always disbelieved. Even now we, we have a paper this coming week uh, on, uh, or I guess in 10 days of Eastern vascular on uh, PTFE bypasses to tibial arteries. And we got a bunch of them. I think it's 30 or 40 that, that have stayed patent over four years, up to 13 years. And nobody's going to believe it. I mean, the trainees that come through that we interview, they say, if you don't have a, a, vein, a good vein, you take the leg off. And, and of course that's wrong. So going back to the beginning, Frank, when you first started doing these very fine anastomoses, did you think it was going to work? No, I didn't. 
because they had a lot of disease. But what was remarkable, particularly with the veins, I mean, unbelievably bad outflow of traps, even at the ankle and in the foot, they stay patent. It's remarkable. Mm-hmm. I never had a PTFE to the foot remain patent for many years. But some of my colleagues, the one who's presenting this paper in a couple of days, uh, he he, and I think uh, another uh, Mark Edelman has a case where he he went below the ankle uh, with a PTFE bypass and had remained patent for 11 years. Now, why some work and others don't, we never could figure out. So it's clear that you've got these personal qualities, Frank, of embracing innovation and, and novel technologies as well. Where do you think those qualities come from in you? Uh, I don't, well, I wanted to, when I went to Montefiore, which was really sort of, I, I call it a third world hospital uh, because it, it had primarily indigent patients. Uh, you know, I wanted to make a mark and, and do something that, that was of importance. It wasn't just important in the Bronx or New York, but that might be of interest to other people. And, uh, and of course, for that to happen, other people have to confirm what you're doing. And that, that's not so easy always. You think, Frank, the fact that you came, you know, you came from the, you know, you came from the hard end of town, if you like, or your experience gave you some personal drive to prove you could do it, you know, despite the doubters. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was a mainline sort of vascular person, you know, Cornell, Columbia, NYU, uh, I would have liked to work there, but I, I really didn't get the uh, uh, opportunity to. Uh, I was at Cornell in Bellevue, and uh, Cornell decided to close Bellevue to, to get their division out of Bellevue. So one day I picked up the New York Times and I read I was out of a job. <laughs> and that's when I went to the Bronx, you know, in, intending to you know, get on my feet and then go back to some mainline uh, first-rate academic hospital. Yeah. So you, you already alluded to this, Frank, about your uh, transition to the Bronx, but uh, um, uh, maybe you could comment on this. You know, I, I know uh, New York went through some tough times, uh, in the, especially in the 70s and 80s, yep. and uh, probably... I'm just going to guess, maybe you could tell us, I'm going to guess that if things were hard for all of New York, it might have been harder in the Bronx. Um, what was that uh, like? Well, you know, I lived in the Bronx. Most of my partners uh, lived in Westchester, which was an affluent suburban community. But I actually lived in the Bronx for many years, which was very close to Montefiore. And it was an okay neighborhood. It wasn't, you know, real inner city for a long time. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of liked it. I, I, we used to call ourselves sewer workers because the general surgeons always used to dump on us. You know, they say, you, they, my, I had a chief named Mark Gleedman. He used to say, you're going to open up a shoe store that sells single shoes <laughs> because of our <laughs> amputation. And, and, and he oh would rag us all the time. And, uh, and we would work much harder, both myself and my partners, we would work much harder than the general surgeons. 
Yeah, well, you know, one of the things uh, that I think has really captured the attention in the United States for sure, but maybe around the world is this idea that as vascular surgeons, we very, very often are filling the needs of of a population that's really disadvantaged. Absolutely. Um, Unattractive. There's no question. We don't operate on young kids with heart defects. We operate on mostly the, I always used to say that patients that are easy to operate on don't need anything or need good medical treatment. The ones that really need it are going to be very difficult. And they are, they're very challenging. They take a long time. It's the same with the endo, the stuff that you endo guys do so well, the hard stuff is really hard. It takes a long time. It takes commitment. You got to redo it and stuff like that. So, um, I mean, the, the nice part about being in the Bronx, we didn't have much competition. Uh, and, and we were one of the first uh, medical school university services to get a training program, whereas the other more prestigious hospitals were much more part of general surgery. I, I like also what you said about developing what's in your neighborhood. So you went to the Bronx, you had a lot of people who needed limb salvage, and then uh, you led the way in that uh, because that was what the need was at that location. Correct. But uh, it's very interesting. Uh, one of you mentioned it. Now, limb salvage is the hottest area in cardiology and radiology and in surgery. And, and we find that there's this huge pool of poorly treated patients, which was always there. And, and uh, people just didn't recognize it. And an amputation is, at least it always was, in my opinion, catastrophic. The, the patients that we did amputate with vascular disease usually didn't do well. Uh, and, and they didn't survive long. Whereas if you, if you were able to salvage a portion of the foot, they could limp around at home and, and not be totally out of the picture. It's amazing how we still struggle to get that message across. Yeah, I know you've been, you've been whacking away at that for decades, Frank, and it's still a challenge, isn't it? Absolutely. And even our hospital administrators, they, we've gotten much better at it. But in the beginning, these patients, you know, we do a bypass and then they had this horrible foot. We didn't have any plastic surgeons or anything. So we would debride the foot and take care of it and ultimately put a skin graft on and it would take weeks and they'd be in the hospital for weeks. So the hospital administrators say, you're losing a lot of money for us because of length of stay. And, and so the, not only did we have the medical men and other surgeons think we were crazy, the hospital administrators didn't mm -hmm. like it because they didn't make enough money off us. And then later on, they started to make some money. One of the things that hasn't been crazy is um, is what you've achieved with, with the VEATH Symposium. As Ramon said in the introduction, a premier uh, symposium globally right now, but for many years, uh, the VEATH Symposium on Vascular Surgery and Vascular Intervention. But I want to want to go back to the early days, Frank, again, and just ask you about you know, your vision for the meeting at the start, the challenges, the hurdles, what you wanted to achieve. I didn't have any vision. Henry Hamavici started the meeting. He was an old sympathectomy, nerve crush kind of vascular surgeon. And he was at Montefiore. And he, he was well regarded because he was very academically skilled. 
He was a good editor, a good writer. And he knew all the top guys, DeBakey and all those guys. Uh, and he, he trained in Europe. And he started the meeting. And we had about eight or nine faculty members and maybe 100 attendees. And that went on for a couple of years. And he got me to help him. And then he retired. And they put me in charge of the meeting. And it was really, it was fortuitous. I mean, New York was a good place to have a meeting. I, I was lucky because I had good rapport with industry. I, I didn't treat them like, you know, second-class citizens. So they supported the meeting. And, and gradually the meeting grew. It was, it was sort of uh, more good luck than, than brilliance. The, the only interesting thing was my uh, willing, willingness to embrace industry, not as, as being real contributors to vascular treatment. Uh, and that became even more so with endo. Uh, and the other good fortune, cleverness, I guess, in order to invite more uh, good people as they increased in number, I kept shortening the talks. And a lot of people still object to it, but it allows us to bring enormous size faculty. And so you can get one guy speaking for something and another guy speaking against it. And, and it makes for a much better meeting. So it was really a lot of good luck. It wasn't, it wasn't cleverness or creativity. It was just good luck and hard work. So you had no ambition to create the kind of growth in the meeting Ab you've seen? Absolutely not. No. Yeah. It yeah. was fortuitous. And when I was a busy practitioner and, and trying to do my academic work, I spent very little time with the meeting. As it grew, it became more demanding. And now, it's a, you know, I hope it's not wiped out by COVID, but it, it becomes, a, it's a full-time job. I mean, I can work, you know, seven days a week, every day of the year. Mm. My wife tells me I, I, I should stop, but it's hard to do. Yeah. You know, it's funny what you said, Frank, about the uh, shorter talks. I mean, I, I consider that just sort of a, uh, a rite of passage in uh, vascular academic work that it's harder to say something that you think is important and characterizes your thoughts in four minutes than in 40 minutes is actually yeah, more listen work. for four minutes. They <laughs> listen for four minutes. They won't listen for 40 minutes. They'll start playing with their, their cell phone or something. Uh, and, you know, the, I got the idea for doing this uh, in a very interesting way. I would watch television. And they'd have some big shot like the president or Henry Kissinger come on a TV show and he'd be on, he'd talk for two or three minutes and that's it. Then they'd say, well, that's very interesting. We'll have to have you back. And so I figured if they could do it in two or three minutes, we could do it in four or five or six. The hard, the hard part is to get them to stop. And, and we've, we, we've been somewhat creative in, in being able to achieve that. Have you ever had any pushback at the end of a talk when uh, a talk's been stopped prematurely and someone's taken issue with that? But they don't do it much anymore because they know they're not. Well, the way we stop them is we turn the slides off. After giving them an extra 30, 40 seconds, the slides go off and sometimes they keep talking. I mean, I can remember Stan Crawford once. He was speaking at the SBS. He, he was one of my heroes. And he was speaking and he, he would run over. And of course, they had a little red light on the podium. And the red light started to blink 
and then it went solid. And Crawford had a paper cup that he was drinking out of. He just put the cup over the red light and kept right on talking. So that was <laughs> classic Stan Crawford. Excellent. Frank, can you tell us how you pick, how you choose a young up-and-coming speaker for the meeting? I hear them. Uh, one of the things I did from the very beginning, I was very compulsive about going to other meetings and listening. And, and I would hear somebody give a talk, and I'd say, that's a really good talk. Now, as I get older, I don't quite go to, as, and certainly with COVID, I can't go to as many meetings. So I read a lot. I look at other meetings. Uh, and I have people send me. I mean, nobody knows as well as themselves what they're doing that's important and good. So if somebody has something good to say, send it to me, we'll put it on. The, the disadvantage of that is you get too many speakers and the meeting gets too long and so forth. So it's self-limiting. But if somebody sends me something, I put it on if I can, particularly if it sounds interesting. And even if it if it's, you know, it doesn't pan out. I mean, we've got debates with guys saying that statins are no good. At least, you know, let them talk. There are always two sides to every, almost every question. It's a great philosophy. So I'm interested in how you balance this partnership with industry with staying impartial and scientifically sound when you're putting the program together. Uh, by putting on opposing views based on data. And I think industry has the right to market their new developments, which are costly. And if they want to give a talk on, say, drug-eluting balloons or their drug-eluting balloon, we have with the short talk format, we put them all on and, and, and let them go at it. And the data sort of speaks for itself. I, think I just want to follow up on that. I mean, I think traditionally administrators are very suspicious of doctors trying to work with oh, industry oh. and you know, feeling that it will change their partiality or becoming more partial. What, what's your thoughts on that? Everything in life is partial. We live by our biases. And uh, I guess the important thing is to admit it and, and not allow financial considerations to impact on them. And frequently the biases are right and the opposing bias is wrong. So let it all go out there and sooner or later it comes out. Uh, I happen to think I have fights with Jackie Simpson all the time because she's really our CME rule enforcer and, and the Cleveland Clinic. And But why not let somebody who has a vested interest financial in a company, if he has a good scientific point to make, let him make it. And somebody can criticize him. I mean, you know, they have this artificial graft, you know, a, a tissue engineered graft. And the guy who talks on it is president of the company. And they won't let me put him on as a speaker. And I, of course, fight that. I, I, I try to cheat a little bit and say he can talk about the science. He doesn't have to talk about his results. Yeah. If he mentions the results, that's not my fault. So I, I think the, the effort to separate uh, doctors from industry is way overblown. I mean, why not go after our politicians who, who live by the dollar? And, and if somebody works for industry, a doctor works and, and does a study or acts as a consultant, they should get paid. I mean, lawyers get paid by the minute. And, and uh, 
everybody else gets paid for what they do. If a doctor spends time working as an industry consultant or something else, that they certainly should get paid. Yeah. They shouldn't lie yeah. and they shouldn't they shouldn't cheat, but they, they should get paid for their time and effort. And and Frank, going forward, uh, it it was fun to hear about the meeting and how you how it had changed over the years and some of the thinking. And I'm wondering, you know, I, so I, we saw the uh, the email blast that you sent out showing that the cases were going down dramatically in Florida. It should be very low by the time November comes around. That's terrific. But what, what do you think the future holds? I mean, I, I think the likelihood of success in Florida is pretty darn high, honestly, uh, based on the way you've set it up. But what, what how's COVID-19 going to affect us in the long run of trying to run Vassar conferences, do you think? I think it's going to make it a lot harder. But but the fact is, there's no substitute for human interaction. And uh, we keep saying this because at a meeting like ours or some of the other really good big meetings, it's not just the talks. It's interacting with other doctors, with the faculty and with industry. Industry is totally uh, turned off about virtual meetings. Uh, the idea of a virtual exhibit hall, which we've proposed to them, and there are uh, programs for doing that, they're not interested. They want to meet their customers, talk to them, let them examine, feel, and, and test the, the new devices. And, and so I, I think there will be a place for live meetings. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm, I'm very insecure about it uh, because you've got to get on an airplane You've got to miss work. But I think going to a meeting, I can remember when I was young and going to the American College of Surgeons meetings, I mean, they were very stimulating. And, and I learned a lot about what I should do, what I shouldn't do. I, I don't think there's a, a good substitute for a meeting. And the, the problem with making our meeting virtual, nobody's going to stay on a computer for 12 hours and, and from dawn till dusk or even for three or four hours. The, the length of time you can stay on a computer is about, well, an hour, maybe an hour and a half. And otherwise, you drift off, you get called by your family, or you get called to go to the OR or see a patient. I, I think virtual meetings are, are not a substitute for live meetings. Now, how many meetings should there be? I, I don't know. I mean, you, you've, got, you've got to stay home and work some of the time. Do you think institutions will start to step in and restrict travel for their doctors on staff? Yes. <laughs> yes, they will, because they lose money when the doctor goes to a meeting. But the quality of what he does is enhanced. And I, I have to tell you, I'm very troubled by, at least in the United States, the uh, fact that quality of care really doesn't matter much to institutional leaders. They say it does, but they're they're lying. All they care about is the money. And they will support bad care if it produces income for the institution. At least that's what I've seen. And, and uh, it leads to many bad things. It leads to us as doctors doing procedures that maybe we don't need to do to meet their needs. Well, well we, we weren't going to consider uh encouraging you to mince your words at this point. Uh, so, so it's good to get your unvarnished 
opinion, but let me ask you this one. Uh, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, of course, while waxing philosophic, that they learned more from their failures than their successes. Do you have any any memorable failure that's that really helped shape the next step for you or helped shape some idea or some quality in you that you felt end up to be a real positive? God, I can't. I, I've had lots of failures, but usually they're they're uh, <laughs> they just hurt. They they, ha- they haven't <laughs> led to any successes. We we've had failures which we've acknowledged have been due to technical, not mishaps, but less than optimal uh, performance of procedures. I mean, I, I never was a very fast surgeon, and and uh, that that can lead to criticism. You know, you're slow and pokey and all, but the the trick is to get it right and have it work. I, I can't think of any, I'm sure there are, there are instances where a failure has led to some solution. Um, I've had lots just of failures, that's for just sure. Just following up on that though, Frank, I think one of the things of physicians who really care about, you know, their techniques and their patients is failures hurt doesn't matter what stage in your career, right? I mean, you know, you, you, you basically do your best and you're certainly engaged and, and, and struggle with failure whatever time that happens in your career. Is that what how you found it? Yeah, no, I, I think if there's any failure that, that I've learned from, it's failure of communication. Uh, and, and one of the things that I try to tell my young colleagues, they don't all often practice it, and very few other doctors or surgeons do it. But I used to give my cell phone to my patients uh, and say, look, if you have a problem and you can't resolve it, call me day or night. Uh, I'll answer the phone. Uh, please don't abuse it, but but here's my cell phone. And and the other thing I used to do was I made my uh, secretaries and, and uh, clerical staff answer the phone. There's nothing more maddening than, than being shunted to uh, an answering service or a uh, voicemail and never never being uh, able to reach the person you're trying to reach. So I, I think uh, that that's extremely important. And uh, when I wouldn't get called about somebody that had a problem, be it bleeding or a closed graft, that that was a failure that I felt felt was uh, I had to do something about. So I guess there's an answer to to Peter a little bit that good communication. I mean, if you care about your patients, they should be able to call you day or night. And uh, if you can't do fix them yourself, you send them to somebody who can, or or get one of your partners to do it. And 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 we really the group that I had at Montefiore really practiced that. Uh, aggressively, and and one of us was always available. And the other thing is, never turn a patient down, no matter what it is. We 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 take everybody. Yeah, you know, in the uh, my early days uh, in practice in Hawaii, uh, I had a patient who I recommended a plan, and she had family in New York, and she ends up going to New York on a trip. She came to see you. No no reason that you would remember this, but she came to see you. And uh, and you agreed with my plan and you told her, well, yeah, I, I know him. You know, I know I know Schneider. So when she came back to see me, I was a hero just because I knew you. 
And all she wanted to talk about was not the plan, but the fact that you had sat her down and talked it over with her and agreed that that was the plan. So there, there's one place where somebody came to see you and they much, much, much appreciated it. And those kind of ripple effects, you know, a lot of us, you know, we'll never know what those ripple effects are. But no. uh, so that, that was one nice little vignette for me where I was a hero simply because you knew who I was. <laughs> yeah. but Anyway, you know, most many surgeons today would have just taken the patient and done them. I mean, there was a famous saying that Larry Olier had that if you get a, the most dangerous aneurysm is a small one because if you don't fix it, the patient's liable to go down the street and somebody else will fix it. And he, he's right. So what about failures at an individual patient care level? I, I think in vascular, we all have our fair share of disasters. Patients die despite our best efforts. Sometimes they have terrible um, adverse outcomes. I see a lot of young specialists struggle with that a little bit. Do you have any advice for how you handle a, a personal mm. interaction with a patient that ends up being a disaster? Uh, God, uh, that that never stops being a disaster for the doctor. I mean, you you keep trying to find some way that you could have saved them or done it better. Uh, that that that's one of the disadvantages of our specialty. There are bad results, and I I don't think there's any way to not be very upset about it. I mean, working in a group where you have partners that you can talk it out and share with them, that, that's a help, or get their help in the OR or the angio suite. We, we used to have a very, the idea of getting help is, is another thing that in some communities it's hard to do because you have to ask your competitor for help. and and it can demean you, but that's one of the advantages of working in a big group. I, I used to always say that vascular surgery and, and, and probably interventional radiology and cardiology in the same way, they're not a one-man specialty. You have to have a group that you can trust and depend on. And even if there are little jealousies within the group, if you have a problem, you got to call for help. And that some people don't like to do that. I mean, I used to call for help all the time for my partners. That's fantastic advice, Frank. I think it's something all of us can learn from. The importance of putting your own pride behind asking for help from a group is it's great advice. Yeah, no, that, that's essential. And the other thing I think a vascular group has to be socialistic. Uh, and and I'm, I'm totally anti-socialist. But I think you have to share the papers the first authorship, the money, the good cases. That is, is extremely important to establishing uh, a group that really wants to work together. If the uh, professor or the chief takes all the good cases and, and the money and first authorship on every paper, the way the old German Geheimrats did, everybody wants to kill them. And you know they want to get out of there as soon as possible. So I, I think socialism and in that sense, where you're you're sharing the benefits is, is is basically it's a good thing, not a bad thing. There's still jealousies, and you know, sometimes you you can do something to help somebody and it doesn't get appreciated. That's the downside of all that. And it happens. Did you suffer much with professional jealousies from others over the years? Uh 
in my hospital, in the hospital, yes, we as a group were were deemed, um, I don't want to say enemies, but not not favorably. We were not looked upon favorably because we were quite successful in, in getting patients, grants, et cetera. And of course, other groups would not be happy with that. They, they would try to hurt us by not let us, letting us have a wing in a, in a, on a floor. Our patients would be all separated. And, and really, having control of your environment is very important. And, and we really didn't, didn't have that all the time. You know, getting good operating time, all these things. And it's one of the reasons I felt so strongly about our being an independent specialty. What about at a broader nationwide level? Did you get professional jealousies from colleagues? I'm sure academically we did, yeah. I mean, uh, when uh, I started advocating for a endovascular curriculum for our trainees, uh, I was made the chairman of the committee to, to do that. And I accumulated a bunch of guys that had similar endo interests, uh, most of them being outcasts, many of them you know, I won't mention names, but, and then some of the traditional surgeon, again, I won't mention names, they ultimately said we were too enthusiastic and, and they fired me from the committee chair. And at, at the program director's meeting, I think I told Peter this story once, at the program director's meeting, the president of the program directors, who I won't mention, uh, took a poll. There were about 100 program directors in the room. How many thought we ought to have endovascular training? And 98 guys raised their hand. And uh, he said, how many don't think we ought to have it? And two or three, including him, raised their hands. And his remark was, the nays have it. And that's when he fired me. <laughs> so there are. it's an imperfect world sometimes. All right, Frank. So we're going to wrap things up by asking you a couple of questions that we ask to all of our guests. Um, the first one is, who is the person who's influenced you the most in your career? Well, you, you asked me that question in the, in the memo you sent, and I thought a lot about it. There are a lot of people that have influenced me, but I think Stan Crawford, to me, was the penultimate great surgeon, uh, technically and, and uh, creatively. creatively. Um, and uh, Dwight Harkin, who was a cardiac surgeon, who could be a very tough guy, and he was one of my mentors as a resident, he, he sort of, his system for training uh, other surgeons was one that I thought was very admirable, where he gave great, he did lots of cases, it was very busy, and he gave as much of the uh, conduct of the case to the resident or the trainee as that guy could handle. And I tried to, to sort of follow that role. And, and for example, he, I must have done 100 mitral valvuloplasties with him. And by the end of my time with him, I could do a pretty good mitral valvuloplasty, but he always supervised me and was there in case I couldn't do it as well as he. And I tried to do that with my fellows. Uh, so I, I think Harkin as the uh, educator, and he was also a very good surgeon. But um, I, I think Stan Crawford could do things I could never do. I'd watch him, I'd come back, I'd try it, it wouldn't work for me. He was just that good. And of course, Francis Moore was like a god to me. He was the 
uh, chairman of surgery when I trained, and he he was nobody knows his name anymore, but he was the most famous surgeon in the world. Uh, had his picture on the cover of Time and all that kind of stuff uh, when he was active. So those three guys really made a big impact. So if Stanley Crawford was the ultimate surgeon in your experience, um, having trained with these people, was it his technical skills that you most admired or his um, his mental process, his way of approaching problems, or was it a combination of things? I, I think it was everything. I mean, the, the cases that he could do uniquely well were in one area with aortic aneurysms, big ones, hard ones, uh, inflammatory ones, stuff like that. When he got outside his area of expertise, he wasn't that good. He was just an average general surgeon. Um, but he, I mean, his thought process, his coolness under fire, his ability to take a unsolvable problem and make it solvable, I thought were unique. I used to go watch him just several times just for the uh, pleasure of watching him. And, uh, and he was fast and, and effective. So, I mean, he was great. So what one piece of advice would you give to the next generation of vascular specialists? Huh, keep an open mind. Take good care of your patients. I guess basically take really good care of your patient. Uh, and, and you're the doctor. And if they have a problem that you can solve, you've got to be available to solve it, either you or your partners at all times. Again, give them the cell phone. Uh, and, uh, and that and keeping an open mind and challenging what's thought to be current wisdom. Those are the two. That's uh, not one. That's two things. Well, thanks for that, Frank. That's it for this edition of Masters of Circulation. Special thanks to our guest, Frank Veith, and also to my co-host, Peter Schneider and Andrew Holden. We'll see you next time, folks. Thanks a lot.